New on Curiosity Stream, how do you connect a 16th century potato to limitless energy production? Could Napoleon's toothpick have a direct link to a machine that predicts the future? And how can a 1700s conch shell chart a course to humans connecting their brains to the internet? James Burke's visionary series, Connections, returns for a new generation. Experience all new Connections. With monthly, annual, and bundled plans, find the one that works for you at curiositystream.com. Did you miss your deadline to renew your Medicaid coverage? You can still send your completed annual review form to Healthy Connections Medicaid. You may be assigned to another health plan, but you can ask to come back to First Choice within 60 days of renewed Medicaid eligibility. It's your family. It's your choice. First Choice is the right choice. Renew and choose us. Visit selecthealthofsc.com renew to learn more. Welcome to High Stakes, episode 32. I'm your host, Neil Orfield. You can find me on Twitter at PlayerQDFS. High Stakes is produced by Mike Lawrence. You can find him on Twitter at AwesomeYo. And our guest today took second place in the DraftKings Fantasy Baseball World Championship this past year for $500,000. He also recently won a ticket for the NBA Live Final on DraftKings. And he's been just crushing high-stakes single-entry contests on DraftKings, both MLB and NBA. Happy to have him on. His name is Zach Frankel. You can find him on Twitter at GracefulDFS. Zach, how are you doing today? Hey, Neil. Thanks so much for having me. I'm doing fantastic. Happy to have you on. Uh, Zach, well, well, one thing that I uh, have started and I'm starting to ask guests just as a way to get to know people a little bit is uh, where are you from? Do you have any favorite athletes or sports teams? Yeah, uh, I'm a born and bred New Yorker. Um, unfortunately, I'm a massive Knicks fan, um, a gift and a curse. Uh, grew up a huge John Starks fan. Um, and now uh trying to love Julius Randall every day, a little bit more, you know, trying to get there, but uh, yeah, excited, excited about the prospects of the team um, and big Yankee fan as well uh, to more success. But, okay. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you've had a lot of success. And if you're a Yankees fan as well, not as much with the Knicks. Uh, I, of course, uh, being from Minnesota was a huge Chicago Bulls fan growing up. <laughs> So, so I, I hated that. That's a joke. Cause we, cause everybody loved, loved the bulls right in the nineties. That's I was a Scotty Pippen, Michael Jordan fan. And I, I did not like John Starks one bit. So uh, oh. we were on the opposite ends of that rivalry. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm glad that I was a bandwagon jumper for that period because I got to experience winning experience. One of my teams actually winning for a while instead of just Minnesota sports. Uh, but I'm glad that you've got to have that experience with the Yankees, at least a little bit. Yeah. Yankees fandom doesn't feel like that because you feel like you're, Ban- you were born into a bandwagon fan, you know, even though it's family, I can't, you know, I don't go around telling people I'm a Yankees fan too much, but I mean, you're from New York, though. You, you have the right, like it's different than being a Minnesotan who's a huge Yankees fan, that, right? You at fair. least are from New York. Like it is your local team. I think it's, it's okay to be a Yankees fan. If you're from New York, uh, not, not as much, uh, uh, if you're from Minnesota, but anyway, uh, 
let's get let's get into your background just a little bit. Sure. I know that you you told me that you've you've watched this show some, so you kind of know which questions are coming as we talk about your background. But I'll just start with uh, what what kind of background do you have in statistics? Do you have formal or informal training? I have zero. Uh, stati- in the mathematical sense, absolutely none. Uh, a statistics obsessed kid in terms of basketball, baseball cards, and memorizing everything, and just very numbers oriented. Um, but no, no formal training whatsoever. Okay. And then what about uh, computer programming? Same question, any formal or informal training? Even less, uh, you know, computer literate. I went to a school that had like a, a laptop program early on. So we were, I think in like fifth grade, we had laptops, like the old Dell with a little eraser mouse. And um, nice. so exposed to Excel and stuff like that early on. Not that I don't know how much that's really helped other than just being able to understand those things quickly. Okay. Uh, tell me about your professional background a little bit. Usually I ask your professional background prior to DFS, but I think you you told me on Twitter that you still have a full-time job. So tell me about your uh, professional background a little bit, and then we can get into any you know related hobbies, anything that uh, you, you're involved in that's similar to DFS. We're going to start with, tell me, tell me a little bit about your professional background. Sure, absolutely. So um, I uh, have been in the restaurant industry for going on 15, 16 years now. Um, I own two restaurants with my amazing wife. um, And that is the fullest of full-time jobs for the most part. Uh, Restaurants are, I don't have kids yet, but I assume it's a similar feeling. Um, And we've had a lot of success doing that. We love our restaurants. um, And But obviously, you know, when the pandemic hit, things got a little bit crazy in New York City, where our places are. And that's kind of around the time I started to devote myself a little bit more to DFS, maybe out of necessity more than anything else. Um, But now that things are back to normal, we're kind of, you know, in the in the part of life where we're now balancing this kind of newfound uh, side hustle that is turning more into a real profession as the days go. Um, And. I would be lying if I said I didn't. I I adore DFS. I really love playing. So uh, I am trying to devote more time to that. But uh, I do I do have a full time job, and I I don't plan on dropping it anytime soon. Okay, I have a couple questions for that. First of all, you say out of necessity. Do you mean because of the pandemic, like restaurants being closed and stuff? Like you needed to find a new way to make money, or do you mean like for your mental health because uh, because we were all kind of locked in a little bit and you needed something to do? Man, I mean that's a good question. I'd say a little bit of each. Okay. Um, I think. You know, it wasn't like I needed to, if I didn't win a GPP, I couldn't pay my rent, but it was not knowing what, you know, we were at both of the restaurants were closed for a while. One opened up pretty quickly back up and then both eventually opened up. But there were certainly periods of time where we were watching the news at home, especially in New York City. And you're like, are we going to get to open the restaurants again? Or do we really need to take, you know, Um, and I had had a little bit of DFS success in 2019, um so you know it's kind of a moment of my wife turning to me and being like hey remember when you won some money can we do that again so um, (laughs) okay so you you had an encouraging wife yes oh she has always been very encouraging maybe for lack of understanding dfs a little bit but (laughs) that's all right yeah it's that's uh that's great to have some to have a wife that uh encourages you to play that's pretty awesome um and, and uh, I also want to ask you, do you have any related hobbies? Like, are you involved in, I mean, restaurant, the, the restaurant business is pretty different from DFS. Are you like sure. a chess player or any, any, any kinds of hobbies that are more related to DFS? No, I wouldn't say directly. I mean, I, I play avid sportsman. I play sports. Uh, and 
I've been a, you know, I've been a season long fantasy player my whole life. Right. Okay. I, I played baseball fantasy through high school and I think we took it more seriously than maybe a normal group of kids did, um, carried it on through college a little bit and then kind of broke up, broke apart a bit. But, um, no, I, I don't really, it's, I, I've watched your show a lot and I think a lot of guys have that kind of chess and stuff like that. You know, that super, super brain stuff. Yeah. And I'm by no means a super brain. So, uh, <laughs> I stick to shooting basketballs and stuff like that. Okay. Well that, that works too. Um, oh, the other question I want to ask is just about the, the timing of it all. Cause you're working, I mean, you have a full-time job, you own two restaurants. I got to imagine you're pretty busy. Uh, how, how do you work that in? How do you work it into your schedule to play DFS when you are, you know, so busy with your day-to-day job? So get, it's getting easier. Uh, as, as you would imagine, the more success I've had, the easier it's been to be able to step away from the, the restaurants a little bit. Um, and find more time to do it in terms I of think, hiring more people at the restaurants or, or how does the success sure, or to? just, yeah. Or even just an understanding between my wife, who's my partner that like, I need this time okay. at night, yep, whatever. Yep. I don't Understood. know if I could do it if I wasn't on the East coast, if I'm being honest, what's nice is that one of my restaurants is only open during the day. So I find for as being like a single two entry player, mostly single entry. So long as I'm like in front of the desk at five for a 7 PM start, that's about as much time as I need. Um, Obviously, throughout the night, I'm kind of tinkering with where I'm going to be for the next day and so on and so forth. Um, but yeah, it's a it's a balancing act. I think, you know, go, listen, going away um, and winning half a million dollars on something is life changing, not just because of the money, but it also gives you some, I don't know, it's easier to then go back to people and have some real I'm validation. Yeah, some validation. Yeah. You know, so. it's, it's I think DFS is easy for people on the outside to think of it just like sports betting, like, oh, you got yeah. lucky, oh, flash in the pan. So having something that has has allowed me, I think, to have the confidence in myself, knowing like, okay, I think I can win going forward. I'm going to set the restaurants up to try to step away a little bit more. Yeah, it definitely changes the way other people view what you're doing once you have had this success. Because prior to that, everybody's just like, you gotta, you're, you've got a gambling problem, like what's going on here? And then after you have some success, people start saying, okay, maybe this is actually something that you're good at. And especially, you know, if people... You know, actually hear about what goes into it as opposed to just like, you know, who the players are, you follow sports. Uh, yeah, definitely. It's good to have that validation. I'm, I'm glad that you uh, were able, have been able to, you know, spend more time on it with your success. Uh, has it ever been like, because you are busy with your job, has that ever interfered with your DFS doll? Like just in terms of like an emergency comes up with your day to day work. Is that, that yeah. happens? A hundred percent. And I, I think I attribute that to maybe why I didn't start off so hot as a DFS player. Um, I look back at my roto tracker and stuff in anticipation of talking to you and, you know, I would go chunks of time without even playing a contest. And like, um, oddly enough, the, the funny anecdote here is that I used to have an issue in one of my restaurants where overnight, sometimes this pipe would explode basically, and there'd be water everywhere. And it was this thing for a while until we got it fixed, where never knew when the phone call was come. But once in a while, the phone call would come and you had to run over there and I'd be have my hand in a pipe and going crazy and trying to figure out stuff. And a couple of times it happened at like 655. And so you're like scrambling and you lose a couple hundred bucks. And at that point, I think uh, I think I did kind of step away a little from playing all the time. Um, Now, I think that I have better process. I feel more comfortable that if something comes up, I kind of have a, maybe a way to work around it, but yeah, it, okay. it screwed me over a million times. So. 
yeah, I, I can imagine. I mean, it, that happens to all of us. Life gets in the sure. way sometimes, but I imagine just having that kind of a job where you are in charge is different than like me when I have, you know, I, I worked uh, nine to five essentially for years playing DFS and playing DFS seriously, but like I never had emergencies really. Like it didn't come up where like I had to go and solve something because I didn't own the business. I was just doing, you know, my, my job. So I can imagine that being a little bit of a pain. Um, what, approximately when did you start getting involved with DFS and, and what drew you in? Yeah. So I, my road tracker goes back to 2016. That said, I had like a handful of contests until 2019. Um, I, what drew me in is I've, I've always been a gambler to various levels of failure, to be honest, as a kid, as a young person, um, and always loved sports betting. And then when DFS, when I started to learn about a little bit and get into it, I thought like, maybe this is something I could be really good at, but I wasn't really good at it. So like, I had this kind of battle with thinking like, I, I don't know, I feel like one day I'm going to figure this out a little bit. This seems up my alley, you know, if, and I think at that time, as people recall, when I watch your show, people always talk about those being kind of the easier days of DFS. Yep. So I'm mad at myself for not picking it up quicker. Um, but it took me a while. And then uh, in 2019, like August 2019 is when I had my first like pretty substantial win where I won a GPP. Um, and I think for many players, probably the same thing is once you have a bankroll, you can attack things differently. And then once you get that mentality, I always played with that mentality of like, I'm going to put the $15 entry in the, in the 150 and, you know, one day I'm going to hit for 200 grand and whatever. And that's a dangerous way to, to try to play, I think. So, um, for sure. Yeah. But so I think 2019 is basically like summer 2019 is when I got into it a bit, had a bankroll, started playing a little bit more and then pandemic hit 2020. Uh, and I was, you know, been pretty full on since then. I, I I would say I'm pretty much playing every slate NBA and uh, MLB at this point. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's amazing how much just one win can really open things up for you just in terms of like your bankroll, how much you can play. And then of course it's so much easier once you do have a bankroll to be successful. And maybe I think you might even kind of change the way you play a little bit. Like I think mm -hmm. you, you know, you don't think of it you maybe don't intend to change the way you play once you have a bankroll, but I think you might be a little bit more willing to take on risk to get away from the chalk a little bit more when you have a bankroll. So uh, it's definitely helpful once, once you get that first big win. Uh, so you, you say that you were not a winning player. I was going to ask, were, were you a winning player? It sounds like you were not immediately a winning player in DFS in 2019, but that's also, I mean, how, how quickly did that success come? Because you say you won a GPP pretty quickly. I think, you know, so at that point in 2019, I was still playing FanDuel and DraftKings a little bit, just like here and there. Sports betting wasn't legal yet in New York. Um, and I think, I don't know, I was just had my foot in a, in, in a little bit here and there. I wasn't, um, I don't want to make it seem like I wasn't playing at all, but I wasn't playing very frequently. Weekends, like kind of, kind of like we talked about, the restaurant was getting in the way at that point a lot. One of them was brand new. Um but in the in that summer, once I hit, uh, I pretty quickly started playing every day. But before that, I failed like constantly. I don't think I hit before. I think I won eight hundred dollars one time in like twenty seventeen or eighteen. But like, I was happy if I min cashed like over the moon. Like, and I I was I put money in a bunch of times. I was not a successful player at the beginning. Um, I think unlike sports betting, maybe when you win a lot of money sports betting, maybe you start to make stupid decisions. 
for DFS, it was the opposite for me. I, when I started to win, then I started to make better decisions, I think, kind of understand what got, oh, like, this is what worked for me. Let's try to recreate that. Yeah. No, I think, I think, I think similar for me. Like once I started finding success, I found it more easily. It's kind of like you take a little, take a while to kind of find your stride, but then maybe once you win, it helps a little bit. And then of course I, I've gone through a pretty big losing streak also. So it's maybe, maybe not a sure thing to always be successful once you have found it, but uh, yeah, it definitely helps once you've got a little success and, and have that bankroll. Yeah. Uh, in, in which sport or sports do you think you have the biggest edge in DFS? Um, I think I'm a really good MLB player. Um, and I think I'm a mediocre at best NBA player. Um, I've had success doing both, but NBA takes a lot more work for me to get there. MLB, I feel way more, I don't know. I think intuition goes a long way for me in MLB. Maybe that's a silly thing to say, but, um, and I don't really play the other sports very much. I dabble in football. Um, I dabble in like the PGA, but it's more just like, to get a little action here or there. Um, yeah. I don't go into it very confident. Um, and probably just because I, I know less about those sports. I'm a football fan, but like not in the way I am basketball and baseball. Um, and I think okay. for a player like me playing single entry who isn't playing only by the numbers. And I, for me, I think I don't have any edge unless I really am in a sport I feel really comfortable with. Where do you think that intuition comes from for baseball? Like, do, do you watch a lot of games throughout the year or are you? Okay. Yeah, I, I think it's really just, you know, I'm 36. I think I've been a pretty hardcore sports fan since I was like a tiny little kid. Um, and I think it's just at this point, it's a Rolodex of baseball specifically. I feel like it's a Rolodex of at-bats in a weird way. Mm -hmm. of just kind of being able to, I don't know, not let the numbers tell the whole picture because they don't always tell the whole picture. Right. Um, and I think having watched enough games, like I'm not a baseball scout, but... I've watched a hell of a lot of baseball, especially over the last few years, uh, to the point where like, I think being able to enter my edge, I think comes from being able to identify where the numbers aren't telling the whole story. Okay. Yeah. And I think that's a, that's a big part of it because, uh, especially when everybody can so readily find projections these days, like we yeah. all have the numbers, like everybody exactly. has access or could access the numbers if they wanted to. So that is kind of where you need to find your edge is what are the numbers not telling me? So, uh, yeah, exactly. that makes sense to to use your intuition there. Let, let's talk a little bit about your process. And I'll sure. start with just some of the questions that I ask everybody starting with, uh, do you do any simulations of your own or use simulations from outside sources as part of your process? No, I don't. I, I'm interested in it for sure. Um, and I, I'm fascinated when I hear people on your, on your show, talk about how they use that. Um, but it is not something I have in my process now. Okay. And, and what about an optimizer? Do you use an optimizer to create your lineups? Yes. Um, in a sense, uh, I am hand building ultimately what my single entry lineup is going to be, but optimization is a part of my process. Um, I'd say oftentimes maybe that's to know what the field is doing more than it's to know what I'm going to do, um, or to get a better sense of roster construction and the kind of roster construction that can win me a GPP on a given slate, um, to kind of see where, where does the projected score land for these lineups that I think other people are going to be putting in and what do I have to beat? Um, I like to go into every slate with a projection of like in my head of what it, the exact number it's going to take me to win first place and kind of build towards that score. Okay. Can we, can we get into that just a little bit more? So, so you say you yeah. use it to figure out what the field is going to do. So are, does that mean that you're using like 
one of the publicly available optimizers, like the optimizers that other people are using to see the kinds of lineups the optimizer gives you? Or what do you mean exactly by uh, using it to figure out what the field is going to sure. be? Sure. So in the past, yes. In the past, I would use Fantasy Cruncher and Lineup HQ. That's what it's called on Roto-Grinders, right? Uh, Fantasy Sounds Cruncher right. and Lineup HQ and just you know do the minimum amount of adjustments adjust as the news was coming out with exactly what I kind of thought the field was doing and just run it that way. See what the optimal lineup was going to be. Now what I've gone to is I have started to build something um, with the help of a friend. Hi, Scott. Shout out, Scott. Um, Did you miss your deadline to renew your Medicaid coverage? You can still send your completed annual review form to Healthy Connections Medicaid. You may be assigned to another health plan, but you can ask to come back to First Choice within 60 days of renewed Medicaid eligibility. It's your family. It's your choice. First Choice is the right choice. Renew and choose us. Visit selecthealthofsc.com renew to learn more. Looking for a fun way to win 25 times your money this football and basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of stats, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million players who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com slash play100 and use code play100. That's code play100 at prizepicks.com slash play100 for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. To kind of call this information from all these sites at the same time um, and then optimize based on try to get a, bet, a better picture of what across the industry is doing. Um, so I'm using projections from across the industry with, you know, adding a little bit of my own spice to it, maybe adjusting minutes here and there, trying to get uh, as close to what I think is going to be the outcome of the slate and then get a sense of what those lineups are going to be. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, that, that makes sense. Yeah, I was, uh, I was, I was curious. Uh, you know, coming in, I kind of assumed that you were going to be not an optimizer user just because you are single entry, and we we talked about it just briefly before we got on the show. So I I knew that you were using your own optimizer, but that's uh, it's an interesting part. I don't think there are probably that many single entry players who are using an optimizer in any sense. Uh, maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe maybe there's a lot more than I realize. But uh, you know, I've always thought of an optimizer as something that you know, you use if you're making a bunch of lineups and you need something that's going to make them for you quickly and adjust them for you quickly. Uh, but it sounds like, I mean, it sounds like that's also a, a great way to use an optimizer, even if you are just making, you know, one to three lineups, it's a good way to see what the field is doing, what projects yeah. well, what does an optimal lineup, how, how does it build uh, that kind of thing? So that's, uh, I, I find it incredibly helpful for MBA specifically because, um, especially with late swap stuff, um, to be able to jump back in to be, to a lineup and say like, all right, I, these are the four pieces I'm locked into. Now, given all this late breaking news, what are the op, what's the optimal way to use my last three pieces? So I'm not always optimizing the full eight spots on the roster. A lot of times I've keyed in on a play early in the day where like for better or worse, I'm not getting off of it anyway. Yep. Um, but yeah, I do. I do use it as part of the process. Okay. Uh, and I was going to, uh, 
do you create your own projections from scratch? It sounds like you you use projections from all over the industry for the purpose of seeing what is what the field is going to do. But do you do your own projections for creating your lineups? Yes, um, I take the I take basically the average of the the industry's projections. Okay, yeah, um, and I adjust those to kind of where I'm at. Um, okay. Yeah, that, that, that's probably the best way to describe how I use uh, use that. Yeah. And I think that's a, a fairly common approach to aggregating projections from all the different sources. And, you know, different people will weigh different projection sources differently. And then, you know, uh, yeah. And then I also do a lot of the personalizing them for, well, if I leave the projection at this, I'm not going to get any of this player. Of course, it's a, a very different process for making many entries versus one entry. Because if you want to play a player, you just, you can just lock them in for that one entry but uh yeah definitely useful to be able to make those adjustments um yeah and you have plenty of nights where you like i mean there was a night a couple of weeks ago where you had i think larry nance was out or about yeah larry nance was out and one side is saying projecting jackson hayes to get the backup minutes and then ernan gomez is on the other side so if you're trusting just those numbers and not giving your own little spin on it you're just going to be left with something you could have been left with jackson hayes who didn't see the court so right yep yep important to make those adjustments uh, how much does ownership play a role in creating your lineups? Um, in baseball, I think it's probably the most important part of creating my lineups. Um, NBA, a little less so. Uh, NBA, obviously, there's guys you're not going to win without them. Um, that doesn't matter the ownership, yep. which honestly, to me, is the worst part about NBA. Um, because I feel like a lot of nights, an eight-man roster is a four-man. becomes It becomes a four-person competition. Yeah. Um, in baseball, it's hugely important to me. Um, I create, my process starts the night before. I create a dummy lineup based on sheerly, like I don't look at anything and I'll do it based just on my intuition of kind of like, what's the field going to do tomorrow? Like what's the normal, like what's the lineup going to look like that every Joe is going to put into the, put in when he starts, opens up tomorrow. Yep. Um, and from there I, I use, you know, I, I I think I said to you before when we were chatting, like the higher a player owned in baseball, the less chance I'm going to roster him. So it's hugely important to me. Yep, that makes sense. Actually, I skipped over a question here. Uh, do, do you create your own ownership projections from scratch? No, um, I would love to learn how to. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm, almost, I'm still pretty new to this um, and I'm getting more and more into that side of it, The you know, but uh, I don't. Okay. And actually, I want to I want to go back to uh, the conversation about ownership and how it plays a role in NBA. So, so you just said that you hate it when there is a player who is like a, an absolute lock, right? And I feel right. like I'm I think a lot of people are like you and that they absolutely hate that. I kind of like it. It just like huh. decreases the size of the parlay to some extent. And go, going back to what you, how how you described how you think of NBA DFS uh, as we were talking before the show. Do you, do you want to tell me what you were telling me about how you how you kind of view NBA DFS as a parlay? Yeah, so I, I I was saying that um I, I basically think of NBA roster construction as a eight leg parlay, um and you've got when you've got a chalk whatever let's say Colin Sexton chalk at seventy percent I kind of think of that as the ten minus five thousand leg on my parlay, um which is to say if it hits great I've done nothing really but add a couple bucks to the parlay and if it loses I'm done for the night, um. And I think in the current DFS climate, knowing how good a lot of the players are, knowing how much information is out there, knowing how accessible all the information is, um, 
I think being holding hands with the field in that regard and building those parlays, those multiple minus 5,000 leg parlays, maybe there's a long-term success in that, I know. But for me, night to night, it really, it's scary. And I, yeah. um, you know, as someone who I know I'm not the best player in the world, um, I don't want to go up against the best guys in the world in a three-man contest, you know, like yeah. to pick the three best players because they're a lot of times, even in the, you know, single entry, single entry, but I'm still entering my lineup in some other stuff in some four, you know, three max, and I'll put it in the max one uh, in the $15 or whatever. So I still want a shot to win. You know, yeah. I, as I said to you before too, I think part of this plays into my kind of philosophy on DFS is like, I'm trying to win first place. Like I really don't, I really want to win first place. Yeah. Um, and I think if you get too excited about a cash, you're going to look back at your roto tracker in a year and realize it wasn't the year you thought it was. Yep. I think that that is accurate. Uh, you know, now I'm thinking about, I wonder if it's because I play the large field GPPs that I kind of like a player that you can just lock in like a, sure. a, a minimum priced, you know, starting backup point guard, who's, you know, forced to start that game and projected for 35 or whatever that if, to me, it's like in a large field GPP, oftentimes you'll see that player will be 70% owned and they should be 99% owned. Right. So then I feel like I can just lock them in and just kind of decrease the size of the parlay that I sure. need to hit. And, and maybe it's because in large field GPP, to some extent, I know that the field will get away from that player uh, more than they should probably. So, so maybe that's the difference here. Why, why I kind of enjoy it a little bit. And I, I don't, I don't like the nights where it's like every, you know, there are five different min price chalk options or, or pl players who just project so well. But I think that uh, just having some pieces that can kind of decrease the size of the parlay that I need to hit. Uh, I, I like those a little bit better so that I can just focus in on certain parts of the puzzle. It's funny that you say that because I've heard you talk before about how in showdown specifically, like you're very focused on not duping a lineup and so on and so forth. And I just wonder whether do you, it does, you're not thinking like, oh, because I'm going to go with the chalk on this, that my roster construction is going to be so similar to these yeah. guys who are putting 150 lineups and yeah, locking no. them in. For sure. Yeah. It, it, I guess that, that is a little bit of a concern, I guess, but with NBA and, and I guess it kind of depends on the size of the slate sure. too, right? Like if it's, if it's a three game slate and you're locking in three pieces, then yeah, it becomes a concern that you're just going to have the exact same rosters you're going to do, or your roster is going to be very close to everybody else. But see, to me, I, I guess I kind of view it as in on a, you know, nine game slate. If I have two or three pieces that I can just basically lock in or, you know, play in almost all my lineups, it just, uh, th there's still enough different ways places that I can get different and I don't need to try to get different. Uh, I, I guess I don't need to focus as much on every part of my lineup. I can then just yeah. say, okay, I've got these two chalk pieces locked mm -hmm. in and now I know I need to find other places where I'm getting different. Um, I don't know. I, I find it just a little bit easier to like visualize how to make a roster. If I have sure. like players that like, I know that I want this guy in this spot and this player in this spot. And now how can I get different from what everybody else is playing that is going to do. It's, it's a little bit easier for me to visualize, I think. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. It's a, it's an interesting I, question though. Cause I, I think there have been be, times. No, I, and I think that this is, to be honest, I think one of the weak points of my game is trying too hard sometimes to get away from, from the chalk. And I think I'm learning what that balance is and how certain days, certain slates, like you, that you just need them to win. And I think it's also coming from having more success in baseball and feeling more comfortable in that world it's hard to, you got to really like change your hat for a bit for basketball season. And I assume as someone, I don't play the other sports very much, but 
you were saying you play XFL and also like, I assume that's for every sport, right? You kind of got to change yeah. everything. Oh, for yeah. sure. Every sport is different in a big way. Even like NFL versus XFL is just so different just in terms of, you know, NFL, the field is generally going to be fairly efficient, but the XFL, it's like, nobody knows shit. So it's like, it's a totally different game than NFL where everybody has the information, but like, you also know it's wildly, there, there's a lot of variance in NFL with XFL. It's like, no, we don't really know all that much in general. So it's a completely different game. Um, I will say just going, getting back to just uh, talking about like chalk in NBA. I, uh, if you, you've listened to my show enough, you probably know that I also listen to the Lowell's podcast frequently with, uh, mm-hmm. Brian Hooper and Pete Overzet, uh, one of my favorite podcasts to consume, uh, just because it's really interesting to hear them talk DFS. And I was hearing, uh, listening to the most recent episode, Brian was saying that he thinks that in large field GPPs for NBA, players don't play chalk enough, which I thought was interesting. I was like, that's probably true. Like people, yeah. people don't play the chalk enough in the large field GPPs, whereas in small field GPPs, which is what, you know, obviously what, you, what you're playing as a single entry player. Uh, he says that, you know, it's more helpful to get away from the chalk. So I think it kind of makes sense that you, you do focus on getting away from the chalk, at least according to, you know, what Brian was saying, what he has seen in these smaller field tournaments is that people, you know, tend to play. I think it's people tend to play more cashy lineups in the high stakes stuff. Whereas yeah. in the, you know, well, the I think it also GPPs. bears out too. If you look at just your results page on DraftKings on a night where like, let's say you didn't cash in the bigger ones, but you cash in the, in the max entry, you know, it's, it's often because of just what you're saying, where then that max entry, a guy's 50% and then your single entry, he's 80%. Um, right. But I also think one of the hardest parts about single entry is that, is kind of projecting what that ownership is really going to be because yep. it's just not this. We all know it's not the same as the projected ownership on any site for those max entry tournaments. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about the live final a little bit later, but that was a perfect example of, I went into the live final when the slate locked, I thought I had the, the least chalky, like, you know, I had figured it all out in my hotel room and no one was going to have these guys. And then most of my players are 20% owned. So, oh. um, you know, the, the sites that day, like, you know, stochastic and, and rotogrinder stuff were projecting for like the max entry for these guys to be rationally owned. So I think that's been an interesting part is learning. Like there is a difference between slates, between tournaments, between, so all that stuff plays into it. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Every contest is different for sure. Um, yeah, it's, uh, just as somebody who has not really had a ton of success at single entry and to be honest, I, I haven't played it a ton, so it's, it might just be small sample size, but I'm always listening for those little tidbits of, huh, maybe, maybe that is like what Brian says, you know, maybe it is just that I am playing too much of the chalk in the smaller field stuff. Um, because I'm, you know, in my mind, it's like, you, well, you gotta, you gotta play less chalk because you don't really need to get as different to win a thousand person contest as opposed to a 30,000 person contest, but it kind of makes sense that, you know, if everybody's playing the same players, you're not really giving yourself kind of uh, any real significant outs. So yep. uh, interesting to talk about that kind of stuff. W- would you call yourself an exploitative player where you're trying to take advantage of the field's mistakes? Yeah, I would. Um, I think certainly like mostly with late swap um, and just being someone who's willing to stay locked in from five to 10 Easter Eastern. Um and I think if you, I think to be a winning DFS player right now, you have to be willing to stay locked in, not just before slate, but once the slate locks, um, certainly for basketball and I think baseball as well to an extent. Um, and what I'm trying to do, I think a lot of the times, 
I would say the lion's share of my wins have come with late game hammers and like stuff that I've been able to get to on late swap. Um, and I think that part of that is looking not just at like, what do I have left? But looking at like, where does the field stand now? What was the ownership of the night? Where are these scores going to land? And knowing like, okay, this is kind of what I got to do. Um, and I think that that, maybe that slows things down and makes DFS a little easier sometimes to think about, to look at your roster and say like, not overall, I need 350 points to win, but to be like, what do we need from each of these spots now? So like at seven, that's really hard to do. It, you know, you're just going to give all your guys ceiling projections and be like, that great, I'm going to score 380 points. But it's a little easier once you've seen the slate play out at nine o'clock to, you know, like I won my basketball live final seat playing a 1% owned Drew Eubanks who only scored 11 points. But I knew at that point I could shuffle my, I shuffled my lineup, took the hit on a $3,000 guy because I knew that having an additional payup guy that night was going to have a chance to win things because just the way the slate had played out where like yeah. some of the other big guys hadn't hit and it was, it was going to be a stars and scrubs slate where nobody played stars. So I think being able to make those adjustments and, and, you know, take advantage of the mistakes, maybe, the, maybe the field didn't make a mistake, but the players made a mistake and I want to take advantage of that. Like the actual human beings, right, right. you know, didn't. Okay. So, so in this case, you swapped onto you made you made a, a two for two swap where you swapped onto Drew Eubanks and a stud instead of two more mid range players. Yeah, I think it was actually a three. Okay, three three, three. person swap. Um, okay, uh, it's another thing we can get into as well. But I, it's another. I'm also trying to take advantage of people not having the balls to play certain guys. I think that's okay. a huge part of my game. Yeah. Um, is like that specifically my NBA final seed is a great example. Like Trey Young questionable. A lot of, I watch all the stuff before seven. A lot of people thought he was going to play. I thought he might play, but I took a chance that he wasn't going to play. And I'm willing to put a little at more money maybe than certain, you know, in single entry, maybe people aren't willing to put a couple hundred bucks on that premonition. So yeah. um, then it got to that. It opened up, it opened up a million, and I ended up getting to Bogdanovich and DeJounte Murray and then having, you know, uh, Eubanks left over, but nice. Um, so you got to yeah, multiple I, of the teammates. Yeah. Yeah. But just knowing that like, you have to be comfortable. I think knowing that a lot of the times that's not going to work out, you're going to have a, a horrible lineup. You're going to finish in dead last and you got to just move on. Like I, I'm a kind of, I'm okay with being in last place as much as I'm okay with being in one spot out of the cash. I don't right. care. It doesn't yep, hurt. Exactly. Me. If you're not making money, you're not making money. doesn't matter how far down you are. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Uh, I just want to touch on, you said that you you use late swap or you have to pay attention. You stay locked in for MLB as well. Is late swap a big part of your process for MLB as a you know single entry up to like three, three entry kind of player? Like, are you frequently making swaps on MLB that aren't based on like, I was going to play this guy and he's, he's injured. Like, do you make swaps even when like your, your guy isn't ruled out, that kind of thing? A little bit. I think that's more... Man, I think I'm the opposite of a lot of players. I think a lot of players want to get their the sure thing in at seven o'clock. They don't want to miss that. Like, oh, that game is a, a you know, I've great, great, great game script for this game at seven and so on and so forth. I'm kind of the opposite where it's like, I don't want to be locked into the guys at seven o'clock. Um, that scares me because I just feel like I look at results a lot, you know, of past contests, not just my own. 
I find that I know this is like a silly thing. I know that I'm going to get laughed at for saying it. I'm sure I do think it is difficult to win slates without a late game hammer, late game hammer sometimes in, in MLB specifically. I mean, NBA is different. I don't feel that way, but in, I think in baseball, um, a home run at seven o'clock counts the same as much as a home run at 10 o'clock. And if it, if I think it gives me a little edge against the field to be able to wait for, for news in baseball, to be able to see if I'm going to get a, a different lineup, then sure. Um, I don't want to make it seem though, like I'm having, leaving my lineups empty and only plugging in a couple parts I, for baseball. I have an idea of what I want to do before the slate locks. Um, okay. I'm just willing to kind of stay locked in. And like I said before, it's more about looking if a guy hits three home runs at seven o'clock, I may make a lot of changes to the back end, knowing I've got to get to a different score. So maybe okay. I'll go with two $5,000 pitchers instead and try to get up to all studs and just know, you know, um, so you like having the flexibility. You're not saying that like you, you get more, you know, that it's the late games always go off. It's just, you think that it's helpful to have flexibility in the late yes. games. Yes. You yeah. know? Um, and I think it's, I think again, I'm learning. I'm trying to get better to, as a player. I think being someone who looks at t start times less would probably help my game a little bit. Um... Seeing is believing, and you're not going to believe how bright and vivid the colors are on the Samsung Neo QLED and OLED TVs powered by the neural quantum processor. Because this is an audio ad. Unless you can see it, which means you already have one. Nice. Samsung, more wow than ever. For the best TV viewing experience, witness the coziest maroons, the most vibrant and brightest moons, the eeriest and darkest tombs, and radiant and vivid hues in any type of room with the Neo QLED and OLED TVs by Samsung. We're supposed to say Samsung, but that didn't rhyme, so <laughs> you're welcome. Samsung, more wow than ever. And, you know, I think maybe that's also because I just love to like hate watch a seven o'clock basketball game and like root for failure is one of my favorite <laughs> things. Um, Interesting. Yeah. You know, oh, my God. Like watching like a Pacers Pistons game and just hoping for like just awful basketball. Like, love it. Man, uh, I've never tried that. It sounds like it could be enjoyable. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. You got to pick the right teams. But, um, yeah. you know, it does bite you in the butt a lot, though, too. Basketball specifically, I think, with blowout potential, and you can really pigeonhole yourself into a roster that doesn't give you a shot. Whereas in baseball, I do feel like you, if you're throwing out eight live bodies, you've got a shot. Yeah, for sure. Um, let me take a minute away from this conversation with Zach to tell you about NBA Bet Pro. Stochastic's top-ranked DFS pros have made millions of dollars in daily fantasy contests using Stochastic's NBA DFS player projections. Now users can have direct access to the same NBA player stat projections that drive our winning DFS player point projection models. With this data, users can apply advanced sports analytics to player prop bets and get an edge on the sports books. These NBA projections are directly managed by Stochastic's team of established experts, including Alex Baker, Steve Buzzard, and Sean Zahn. For a limited time, you can get a seven-day free trial of BetPro for new users, then $15.95 per week or $55.95 per month. I know that you uh, you mentioned in your uh, your most recent NBA win that you watch NBA Live before. You, you gave credit some credit to, uh, to Greg and Eric for some yeah. of their calls uh, on the night. So I know that you watched that. But that, that's something they talk about all the time on NBA uh, Live Before Lock is saving room for later players, which obviously, you know, MLB, it's a little bit different like basketball, like 
it's you're going to come into some really great plays if you save for late swap. But I imagine that baseball is still kind of the same way. Like you can still find there are plays that open up a little bit later on in the night based on different, you know, the, the lineup coming in different than you expect that kind of yeah. thing. So I think it, I think it still makes sense, but mm-hmm. basketball, I think it makes a ton of sense uh, to, to save some swap ability for later in the night, just because news opens up pretty frequently in basketball. I think Eric, Eric does a good job of always kind of like, I think Nas Reed has been the running guy where to reiterate that, like, just because a guy fails, doesn't make him a bad play. Just because you saved a spot and Rudy Gobert wasn't ruled out, doesn't make it a bad idea. Like right. if he was going to be the nuts, he was going to be the nuts. And like, you're trying to give yourself the best shot to win and basketball specifically that that's the big difference is that, like I said, like a home, a guy, you can get to the pl- the play of the day in baseball at 10 o'clock, a guy who you weren't expecting to start still that he he probably is not going to hit a home run right even if he does it counts the same as the guy who hit the home run earlier in basketball it's a little different you get to a three thousand dollar guy at 10 o'clock who goes off for 40 points you can't win if you didn't have him yep yep and yeah process over results as you're saying it's just like just because something didn't work once doesn't mean it was a bad idea it just means it didn't work that once and we're always dealing with pro- dealing in probabilities in dfs so uh yeah you gotta stay true to your process and to your you know, your theories, the, the way you play the game. Um, you, you mentioned uh, that I, I talk about not being duplicated, being part of my process for like showdown contests. How about you? Is, is avoiding being duplicated a big part of your process for any of the contests that you play? Not before lock. Uh, if I'm in a contest and we're getting, you know, closer to the end and I see that I'm most likely duped and, you know, usually it'll mean I have a couple roster spots open, but I've got the same five, six guys in already. At that point, I might take a look to get a little bit different. Um, but no, I think because I'm playing single entry, like my fear of being duped is not, I, if I split the top two prizes with someone, it's not the end of the world. It's not like these showdown slates. Um, no, so I, I don't think I factor it in very much. Yeah, and me neither. For for anything other than like things like showdown or like MMA, where it's like you have a really limited field, then you're probably going to be duped. It's not a not a huge thing for me, but similar to, to what you just said, like this past xfl slate i went into the night game my best lineup uh was duplicated like seven or eight times and i was like i'm pretty sure every single one of these people has the exact same players left that i do so i made a swap in that case but yeah not something that i usually go into a slate worrying about um do do you sweat the games i guess you you said that you watch early on you try to cheer for some bad basketball are you always sweating the games yeah too much i i I sweat them too much you know i i don't i don't tweet with uh with my tilt but i'm right there with dk dfs and jesse and all these <laughs> yeah. guys and i you know i um i love i love the game i love watching basketball i love the competition aspect of dfs um you know i think in a weird way i love obviously the money is super important to me um but the competitive aspect of it and like the just the night like going through the slate, knowing that you're going through it with all these other people sweating it. I find that part really fun. I think DFS has this weird, fun community, um, especially on Twitter, yeah. maybe one of the, the few bright spots on Twitter. Um, so yeah, I, I'm watching the games. I'm up late screaming in the house. If I've got a shot, I, you know, I've woken my wife up too many times, you know, but I'm, I'm good at, I'm to do, be better at it. You got to get better at just the silent fist bump. You know, that's, that's what I do. Cause my wife is asleep. I don't want to wake her up. I just, you know, get really excited. Silent lately night. I've been doing, and maybe this is the gambler in me, but lately what I've been doing is like, if I've got a, um, a couple basketball players start in a, in a game, maybe it's a later game. 
and I need them to start off hot. I need to know I'm in it. I won't watch the first 30 minutes of the game. Then I'll open up the game summary, like the play by play game summary on ESPN and slowly scroll and just hope I'm seeing their name in every, like everything like, Oh, assist, you know, I, I do the same thing. Okay. I do the same thing. It's <laughs> it's bizarre. Like there's no reason to do it. You could just go straight to DraftKings. It'll tell you exactly how many fantasy yeah. points they have. But for some reason, I just I I I think I used to maybe you used to, had to do it at one point. But I just I prefer the I get enjoyment out of going to the game, clicking yep. on the play by play, scrolling uh, through and, and seeing. I'm yes, so you got to rebound. I'm yes, you got to steal. One. Yeah, it's it's a bizarre thing to do, but uh, I I do the same thing. Yeah. Um, all right, I've got a, a couple questions about your process for individual sure. sports, but I, I'm going to skip over them for now because we got so many listener questions that are, I think, re, uh, like relevant to the question. So we might oh. just cover it there. So I'll just ask you about live finals first. So, so you had this baseball live final where you won five hundred thousand dollars. Now you got a ticket to the NBA live final as well. Is, is something? Do, do you primarily target live finals as a single? Like, are, what, I know you play single entry primarily. Are you usually playing like qualifiers for live finals or no? Uh, uh, I now yes, but in the past no. I hadn't even considered it to be honest before the baseball final. Never had tried to get into it. Um, I think. DraftKings doesn't do the most phenomenal job of promoting it, I think, um, yeah. as much as I love the company. Uh, but I won a qualifier into a qualifier for baseball. I think That's I won, funny. I can't remember what, what it was, like 80 and 11 people to get to the 895 qualifier. Um, and I lost on a really bad play on the to get the seat, uh, on me playing really badly. I did a, I swapped a pitcher. I should have played Carrasco, whatever it was. And I was bummed. I was tilted. I was like, I blew this. This was a big shot. And then the very next day, um, I said, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to buy myself an 895 quality ticket. And then I ended up winning that night. So that's uh, awesome. And then for the, and then I have tried to do it, you know, obviously after the success of that and how fun it was to, to be a part of that. Um, I've tried to do it for basketball. I probably put like three or four grand into like these larger qualifiers. And then of course I got my seat in a $60, 1300 person one or whatever it is. I mean, as, nice. as fate would have it. Um, but I think the live finals are a great way to, obviously there's some poor bankroll management in trying to win a tournament where the first place gets everything, but there's something to be said for being in a hundred person tournament where everybody's getting cash and top place, the top, what, five, six guys are walking home with six figures. Right. I want to be in that tournament. Um, and also, like I was saying before, there is some validation involved in being part of that. Um, and I like the competitive aspect of it. I'm someone who I want to be good at something like when I get into it, like, and you know, money's not always the best indicator of that, but it's a pretty good one. So uh, being in those big tournaments is is something I definitely want to do more of in the future. And did, did you uh, enjoy your live final experience for the MLB final? Man, yes. Overall, absolutely. Um, I think I went alone. Um, I was very much in the mind, like I need some space to kind of like figure this all out. Um, you know, a lot of people who were there obviously like knew each other, had been at these live finals before. Um, so definitely was a little apprehension. I, I was nervous going into it, not knowing anybody and kind of being like alone there. But um, overall, it was a fun experience. I think like the actual day of, I was telling Neil before, the the actual event itself, I was so stressed out. I left 
I asked the guy if I could have re-entry. It was at Fenway Park. And he said, yeah, you can leave and come back. And about an hour in, I was like somewhere in the middle of the pack. I didn't even think I had a shot at the time. I remember texting my wife being like, eh, maybe I'll, I'm going to do okay. And I, I left the hotel and I, I left Fenway and I stepped outside. And like the minute I hit pavement outside, I think it was Yelich or someone homered. And I'm a bit of a superstitious guy. So I said, I'm going to walk around a little more. And then like same inning, Colton Wong homers or something. And I'm like, all right, now I'm feeling even more so superstitious. I walked all the way back to the hotel, like half a mile, went up into my room, started to panic a little when I saw that I was in like fourth or fifth place. And then uh, a friend who I had met at the live final, shout out Matt, uh, texted me being like, where are you, man? As I started to go up the leaderboard and I was like, I'm running back. And I ran back um just in time to watch myself shoot up into first and have all these cameras on me uh and then just as fast as that happened I went back to second and had all the cameras turn away from me so um I was saying before I just want the footage like I just want to know how dumb I looked and like how having your heart broken yeah like how stupid my the scream I let out when I took first place sounded I just I want I deserve that yeah so um I think they could do a better job of publicizing that stuff a bit um, because I do think people would be into it. Um, yeah, I think so too. Yeah, I I agree with you. I think it's a big miss by DraftKings to not just, I mean, and like you said, there were cameras on you, right? And same yeah. same experience that I've had at the live finals that I've been to, they always have cameras there and you just never see the footage anywhere. And it's just like, it's such an easy way to like get people pumped up for these live finals. They yep. could really increase the size of the live finals have more i, I don't know i think that uh, there are ways to get people excited about the live finals and they're just not taking advantage of it for some reason not not showing the footage um so yeah that's uh people want to right people want to even if it doesn't mean you're the best in the world people want that feeling of like oh, i'm competing with the best in the world or whatever right, right. like and i think they should lean into that a little bit more about yeah but what are you gonna do? They're they're not doing it. Uh, and, and you you say you know it's an okay experience. You had to go to Fenway Park. Was that uh, how how tough was that? Did you wear your Yankees jersey to Fenway Park? No, I, you know I talked about it with my my dad lives in Boston now, uh, and I visited him before, and I uh, I went to the five final. We talked about it, but we thought maybe it was bad juju with a, like a Jeter jersey under the shirt in Fenway. So yeah. we went against it. Um, but yeah. It, it was great. I mean, Fenway is such an amazing place. It's just as a baseball fan, even as a, a Red Sox hater, uh, it was my first time being in there and it was just pretty awesome. Yeah, it's a, it's a cool ballpark for sure. And definitely uh, unique, different than any other ballparks that I've been to. Yeah. Um, okay. So you you enjoyed your live final experience and now you, you say, so are you going back for live finals just because you want to be part of those contests, as you say, where nobody loses or because of the experience like you, uh, and I've asked this question about people about live finals. Like now that you have one ticket to the NBA live final, are you going to try to get more? Or are you just like, I've got my ticket. I'm already going to the event. I'm just going to stick it with one. Yeah. I'm going to try to get more probably. I'm a gambler okay. at heart. Um, and like, I don't think I'm even going to actually go to this one in person just because of some logistical stuff. And it's in D Denver. It's pretty far. Um, and I would never have said that to you before the baseball final. I would have been like, I'm, of course I'm going. I couldn't right. miss it for the world. Um, so after going, it's like, I'll, I, if I can make more finals in the future, I'm sure I will go to some of them. Um, I think I'm in it because I want to be like really good at this. And I think it's a good way to get that validation, like I was saying. And I think yeah. like... Um, it's hard for people, especially if you come from having like gambling in the past and sports betting, 
it's very hard for a lay person to understand the difference between DFS and sports betting. And I think there's a huge difference. So I think oh, yeah. going to that live final and then being a part of this one and the validation of another ticket going to this one has been really helpful in like explaining to people that this isn't just, you know, that there's something more to this. Um, and yeah. I hope there's something more to this. I hope it's not luck. So I think, I think there is something more to it. Uh, obviously there's a lot of luck involved still, but uh, I'm with you. I don't think that it's the exact same. And of course there, there's also skill involved in sports betting because you, you have to find the right lines. And yeah. I don't I can't even talk about it that intelligently because I can't sports bet in Minnesota. Oh, wow. uh, so I'm not going to get into all of the, the skill involved there, but it's my understanding that there's skill involved there as well. Um, but yeah, definitely a different type of game. Yeah. Um, uh, we, we got a number of listener questions uh, that I wanted to ask from from Twitter. Um, so Andrew DeCourcy asked, when constructing your single entry lineups, do you always do it in the same setting, for example, at your desk or in your room, isolated or somewhere else? Do you try to have everything together before you make them or do you just fire off lineups early and then mold them into one? No, I, de- I definitely do. I, I try to be in the same place. Um, I think... I try to be without distraction at that point, um, for better or worse, even though it's not the best timing, you know, uh, sometimes, but I think it's important when you're building a lineup, especially with something single entry that you give yourself enough time to get to a lineup, get to a way of thinking about a slate, get to a game script, and then like play with all the scenarios surrounding that. So like, I don't think you want to sit down. I couldn't sit down 10 minutes before a slate and fire off a, a, a lineup I felt confident in because I want to get to a lineup I feel okay about. And then again, for better or worse, I want to tinker and tweeze at it until I feel, you know, we've all made the mis- mistake a million times of making too many changes. But I think consistency is important. I think maybe the part of consistency that's more important than sitting at the same desk is like being able to forget the day before, not box score watch, not game lot look at game logs and be convinced that what's going to happen what happened yesterday is or isn't going to happen today. So I think just consistency and being like today is a brand new day, I'm going to sit down, I'm going to start my process again and even if it doesn't work again tonight, like I'm going to do the same thing tomorrow and I'm going to sit down at the same spot and do it again. Um I think consistency really matters. If you're jumping all over the place, maybe you'll hit and get a big one, but are you going to know why you hit? And I think the why is important. Yeah. Controlling those variables uh, definitely makes some sense. Um, Evan asks, is Zach mostly, and we kind of covered this one, uh, but we can talk about, I guess, to the extent uh, he asked, is Zach mostly playing single entries or MME? So uh, I guess you're doing both because you're playing single entry contests, right? So you're entering one single entry into a contest where only one entry is allowed most of the time. But is that true? Is that most of the time? Like, tell me about the range of your playing. Like, do you, have you ever tried MME with 150 or are you always playing kind of the smaller contest? No, I've never tried it. I'm, I'm starting the process now uh, of trying to get my process good enough that I can maybe dip my toe in that water and see what it, see what it's like on the other side. Um, for the moment, I'm just playing um, the single entry plus usually like the two, three max, whatever you call that. It's usually like 250 or whatever. Or, and then I moved up and now playing like some, I'll play the 888 and stuff like the, um, I'll enter my single entry lineup into that bigger. I think you said before we were, I can't remember it was before we came on that like you're not as concerned um, about 
entering 10, 20 lineups in 150 lineup field, 150 yep. max. And that's kind of how I feel. Like I'll enter my sing my one lineup. I don't really care. I'll enter it in the 888 where it's a 33 max entry. Like yep. I'm still getting it in there. Um, I think there are nights where that's not going to work out for you being the single entry in that giant pool, but there's also nights where it is. So um, I don't think you can like, I think it's about bankroll management as a whole, right? I don't think you want to be someone's like, I only play in this type of contest and like, I only do that. I think you need to look at the slate as a whole. Think about how confident you feel on the slate. Think about, you know, do you have the time tonight? Are you going to be sitting at your desk from five to seven? Like it's Chevy truck season. And with the Chevy Silverado, there's no such thing as an uphill battle. With the Chevy Silverado, you can take on the mountains or you can move them. Because with impressive towing capability and available 13.4-inch diagonal touchscreen and a choice of powerful engines to pick from, whatever your mountain, there's a Silverado with the capability you need. Click to learn more. Find new roads at your local Chevy dealer. Those things are important. I think if you're just like, this is the slate I play, I play these same contests every single day, no matter what, like, I think you'll get yourself into some trouble. But yep. so I, I just try to be fluid with it and like make sound decisions every day based on my my level of confidence and um, how much money I want to invest into that slate. Yep. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And, and yeah, that, that, I said that I think might, might've been before the show that I'm, I'm totally okay. Similar to you playing, you know, 10 entries in a 150 max field. And I don't know, I honestly don't know what the math would say about whether that is a smart decision. Uh, but I, you know, I, I had some success at it. Uh, that's kind of, that was my roots. That's what, what I started playing, you know, years ago is playing 10 entries when you could have unlimited entries in the largest field GPP contests. And, you know, even more recently I play, you know, I lately I've been playing, I haven't been 150 max. I've been playing, you know, 20 lineups in a 150 max sometimes. And honestly, I, I kind of think it, uh, it's not a huge, like maybe it's a disadvantage. People will say, well, you're playing at a disadvantage to those, you know, 150 maxes. Well, yes, they're obviously more likely to win than those of us who are only playing 20 lineups because they have more shots at it. But I also think you can, what you're hoping for is that those 150 maxers are all making the same decisions and you can get different from those decisions. And so it's exactly. like big swaths of the field making the same decisions and hopefully wrong decisions. So I don't know that it's necessarily a disadvantage to play 20 lineups in a, uh, a contest where you can have 150. I've heard very smart people say they would not play you know, fewer than the max entries in a given contest. Huh. So I, I wonder though if that, that number changed. Like, I wonder if there's a, a past 20, if there's a number where it does start to get ineffective, you know, like 80, 90, right. 100, whether then you're starting to kind of, your margins get a little crazy, but I, I'm with you on that. I don't think, and also we've all heard too many horror stories and lived too many horror stories of not having your entry in the right contest. And yep. I think I tell like friends who are like getting into DFS and they'll oftentimes be entering into like, just like 10 entries in the quarter, you know, 25 cents each or whatever. I just think my personal experience is I think you're better off if you're trying to start. Correct me if you think I'm wrong, but in like, take that 10 bucks and just do a $10 or like, you know, if it's 20 bucks a night, put $10 in the, in a single entry and then $10 in the 150 MME. And like, I just don't think given how good players are, how much information, trying to play a ton of entries, if you're not really like, feeling good about it. I think you're better off probably sticking to one, one content. That's why I yeah. stick to one. Yeah. I think, I think you're probably right about that from, at least from a like profiting on that night standpoint, sure. you know, th there's merit to like, if you want to become a 150 max player, like 
then obviously practicing and figuring out how to do that, you you get to practice by playing 150 max. But yeah, I think I think you're you're correct. And, and just in terms of like if you're uh, just trying to win that night, you're probably better off just playing a single entry, focusing or, or two entries, whatever it is, uh, rather than trying to to 150 max. So yeah, I think there's merit to doing it, but yeah, not necessarily for that given night. Um, is, is my take. Uh, Hannah Badana asks, does he have a player pool and what size compared to game slate size? So uh, I'm going to assume this question is for when you are playing more than a single entry, because obviously your player pool in a single, single entry is just your lineup. But uh, if you're play- when you are playing more than one lineup, uh, do you do you create like a, a player pool ahead of time and say, I want to make my lineup from these players or how, how does that not work for you? Really? Like, I'm not someone who's big on like exposures in terms of like, even if I do a couple lineups and now I am like tinkering with like thinking about what max entry would look like. I find that part a little bit difficult um, to know. I, I don't think I have like a concise player pool. I, I'm pretty open to playing whoever, honestly, I think you have to have an open mind. And I, I, I think Again, like I've, I've, maybe I've pointed out more of my negatives as a player than positives here, but I think one of the negatives sometimes is I go in too keyed in on a guy um, or I'm just like really convinced myself. And then you get in this headspace with DFS where like you've created this player pool for yourself and you're not getting off of it because last time I got off of it and then he hit three home runs. And right. like, I think when you get into, when you psych yourself out, it can be pretty damaging in DFS. It's the same thing. It's the version of, it's like tilt, right? It's like, we we've all been there sports betting or playing poker or whatever. I think that really exists in DFS, but unfortunately it exists as like, you can really carry it day to day and start making some long-term bad decisions. If you uh, don't allow yourself the flexibility, you know, I used to be a guy that played DFS and I wouldn't play Yankees players because I wanted to watch the game and not care. And like, can't do that stuff. No. Yeah. Yeah, you you gotta. It's funny because like in some ways you have to have the memory of a goldfish. Like you be, you have to forget what happened in the last light just because this guy burned you once. You got to play him again. But also you want to learn from your experiences. So it's it's kind of a a fine balance there of like you got to learn from it, but also like stay objective and not like not play this guy because he burned you once. Uh, it's a it's a fun funny balance that we have uh, to play DFS. Um, Jay Bond asks, uh, did he start out as a high stakes single entry player or did he build up to that? Yeah, I mean, I think yes and no. I mean, it depends what you consider high stakes. Uh, I was never someone who played like tiny, tiny contests. Um, I think I've always been someone who wanted to be in like, I think like the $100 single entry kind of areas where I started. Um, that's not to say I came in with a big, big bankroll at all. Like I definitely redeposited a bunch at first and like would redeposit like for the night be like, you know, and this is like 2018, early 2019 where I'd be like, I'm going to put in $200. I'm going to put it all on one lineup in a $200 entry or whatever. And I, and I think the first time I won in 2019, um, the first time I won a GPP, I had of course not entered it into a max entry where I would have won a hundred thousand dollars or something like that. And so uh, I quickly learned from that, that you can't, I don't think you can just be one kind of player. Um, Yep. So, so no, I, I, I did, but I didn't start as someone who like, played really small and built my bankroll up and then started entering. I, I, you know, I gambled before um, I went into it with uh, not a big bankroll at all, but uh, a willingness to lose at first. Nice. Yeah. You gotta, that's good. That's good that you had that willingness to lose right away. Cause I think a lot of people, that's how you lose a lot of play. A lot of people come and they, they lose a couple of sites and they say, all right, I guess this isn't for me. So, so yeah. you gotta kind of have a little bit of that. Like, yeah, I might lose and I'll keep trying and eventually I'll win. 
Um, you got to have that kind of mentality. Uh, all right. Our final question comes from Mark Higgins. And this, I think this is where we can kind of maybe tie this one into, I was going to ask you about your approach for individual sports. So Mark Higgins asks, I'm hoping you're going to discuss roster construction in single entry contests, uh, which I think kind of ties into how you approach also. I, I don't know if you have a specific roster construction uh response in terms of like you play stars and scrubs or you play, I, I don't know exactly uh, the, the type of answer you can give there, but maybe if we get into your approach for individual sports and talk about your roster construction as it comes together with that approach to some extent. So let's start with, with uh, I guess NBA is fresh. So let, let's talk about NBA DFS. Uh, tell me about your roster construction and or your process for creating those rosters for NBA DFS. So I think this is where uh, my idea that I don't want to finish anything other than first comes in. Um, so I think oftentimes if you just use an optimizer, uh, you know, through a site or anything, and you just click run, right? You make the minimum amount of changes and you click run. It's going to give you a projection of whatever. Let's say for the night, it's 303 points. 303 points is not winning the slate that night. It's going to be 330, 340, 350. Um, so... In terms of the process, as it relates to that is I'm going to construct my roster not to get to 312 points. Uh, I'm going to construct it to get to 350. So what I do is I basically will look at look at a roster, build it out when I feel like I'm in a good spot with like, and I guess this means I do have somewhat of a player pool because I guess I've like have guys in mind who I'm kind mm -hmm. of looking at and plugging in in different positions when I'm in those kind of last throws of hand building. Um, then I will go through and I will assign those guys, uh, a floor and a ceiling, um, not based on like projections as much as like my own projections. Okay. And those aren't even like, and my own, when I say my own projections, I think I'm literally saying like Dame Lillard can score 70 tonight. Coming like, back to your intuition to some extent. Yeah. He yeah. can score 70 and yeah. like. I'm going to just play with lineups until it's, I get to spot. You're not going to win a GPP unless the guys overperform. So just assuming that a guy is going to hit his projection and I got all of my projections right tonight, therefore I win, that's fool's errand. You need guys to uh, to overperform. Yep. Just like, a, just like you can't have a guy who's 60% owned underperform. So I think looking at roster construction based on like a floor and ceiling view of things is important. I think if you're doing it based on just kind of via projections and being like, this is how I want to construct my liar. The projections are telling me that this is the optimal way to build tonight. I don't know if that always gets you there. So yeah. my roster construction is more about what do I think the winning score is going to be tonight based on where the slate kind of is leaning, how many games are on it. Um, and then building to a certain score. So I have a score in mind every night and I'm building to that score. And, you know, I can be 150 points off some night in the wrong direction, but of course. Can't we all? Okay. <laughs> all right. So, so that's, uh, and then let's, uh, let's answer the same question in terms of MLB process. Is it very different from your NBA process with MLB? Uh, what, what does that process look like? And what does that kind of construction look like for a single entry with MLB? So um, MLB, like I think we were talking about before a little bit, um, ownership matters a lot to me. So I think roster construction may be less important in MLB than NBA to me. Um, I think 
Where I want to be in MLB is I I know that a guy who's 40 to 50% owned, even 20 to 30% owned, he's not going to, he's, he's going to underperform most nights, unless it's one of these guys, whatever, Trout or, um, but even Aaron Judge is going to not, he can't hit a home run every single night. Yeah. Um, and so I don't think it's, for me, it's not helpful to try to, to build a roster based on projected points in, in MLB. That's not what I'm doing. Right. I'm building my roster based on um, my construction and like my, my process for baseball is basically uh, same thing. Looking at pitchers first, where do I think the points are going to like, what's the target score for points just pitchers wise? Um, I think that's a really important factor of roster construction is deciding early on. I like to decide like the first thing I like to decide is like, can I play cheap pitchers tonight or am I going to have to go double stud? Like, I think that's everybody has to make that decision at some point, but for me, it's important to kind of make that first yeah. um, and then build from there. Um, and then the same thing for, for um, there's no blowout risk to me in MLB. I know okay. people probably don't, some people don't think that, but to me, there's not a guy who, if a team scores 11 runs, my guys most likely got there. Um, so I'm really not worried about all these other factors that play in an NBA when I'm building an MLB lineup. So I really am only worried about what am I projecting the score that wins this tournament going to be? Am I giving myself an opportunity to get that store score? And am I, am, am I giving myself an opportunity to get that score while being different enough from the field that if I don't get every part of the, the parlay, right that I still win. That's why I was saying to you, I kind of try to think of MLB more as a round Robin than, uh, and basketball more as like a parlay. Um, I've won slates before without, with having, a, I've had a zero on the board. You know, I've had a couple guys who didn't perform too well. I won my seat to the live final with a pitcher who scored like 11 points. But that night I got to roster construction that was different enough from everyone else that it didn't matter. Um, so I guess that really doesn't answer the question because I don't really know. I think I'm still learning how, I, what my process is for baseball. I think I said to you before, it is a lot more intuition based baseball than basketball. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm just trying to give myself a shot to win every night. Uh, okay. But well, we've been talking about uh, MLB roster construction. I haven't heard you say the word stack or stacking even once. Are you concerned? Like, do, do you stack your lineups? Are you, uh, you know, I think a lot of people are and myself for, for large field GPPs, I am, always stacking like i on draftings I'll, I'll either have a primary five-man stack or a four-man stack from one team uh are you are you doing the same thing or are you yes, are you actually I, just i'm stacking uh, i'm I'm, okay. I'm definitely stacking i i'd say maybe i do more i'm not a five three guy as like i'm five and not a five person stack guy as much um but i'm stacking i i i guess what i'm saying more is like i'm looking at a stack I should have been more specific because baseball is so different. Okay, like that. I, I guess I think you're talking about, I was thinking, I was, I was getting thinking that you weren't even stacking there for a minute. So, so you no, are stacking. No, I, I'm stacking, but I'm, I'm not afraid to play a bunch of one-offs. I'm not afraid to do a three man and then like five one-offs. I really don't care. Okay. Um, I just am thinking more when, when I'm, I should have been more clear. Like when I, when I'm doing my roster construction, I am kind of thinking in the sense of a stack of like a three man from this game, a three man from that game. I, I'm not going to play. I, when I started playing DFS, I would play eight, individual players from eight different teams and i thought yeah. i could win that way and then you learn you you most likely can't so yeah. um you know i stacked my live final the team i finished second it was a two four mans like you learn pretty quick like the guys who do it right do it right so you got to get with the program
got to kind of, yeah, figure out what the best players in the world are doing. And the rest of us are just kind of copying them for the most part. Yep. Um, yep. All right. Uh, so we'll, we'll close it out. I, I asked this question of everybody to, to close out. Tell me about your favorite win or win celebration. You would think my favorite win would be the half a million dollars one, but I got to be honest. I don't think it is. I think my favorite win was the NBA live final ticket that I won uh, just a couple weeks back. Um, I think when you go to a live final, whether you succeed in it or not, I happen to do well. You kind of leave that thinking like, am I going to get to do this again? Like, you know, I'm not somebody, I'm not one of these top, I'm not Uticao, I'm not petty theft. Like I'm still new to this, whatever. So I definitely left with that feeling. Um, and so I think getting that live final seat and really was like a fucking awesome feeling. It's part of my French. Um, <laughs> but celebration wise, I think just like th these games end late on the East coast. So it being like one, two in the morning and like waking my wife up, like pounding the bed, screaming about something that like, you know, I remember a couple, couple of years ago, Gene Segura won me a slate. And I just remember running into my bedroom and like, and Jean Segura, Jean Segura. And, you know, <laughs> she thinks I'm like having like a, I don't know, a, a, mel a mental breakdown, but, yeah. uh, and, the, and obviously the, the second place was an amazing win and getting to call like friends and family and tell them that is a, a hysterical feeling. Um, so yeah, but I love them all. I, I love all of my wins equally. Did, did you go out and celebrate? I mean, you're, you were in Fenmo, right? When, when you, when that game concluded, when that contest concluded? Yeah, no, I, I didn't. I, I, I went out alone. I was there alone. Uh, and I went and I had a, a, a seafood feast by myself at a bar and nice. tried to like wrap my head around what had just happened. Um, I was, I had driven there from New York and I, I, I called my wife right away and I was like, I think I'm going to drive home. Like I want to be with you and see friends and whatever. And she was like, you are not getting in a car right now. Like you are oh. too amped up, buddy. You need to yeah. sleep this one off. I'm so. not even drunk. You're just amped. Oh, up. Oh no. Just like that's, it's a real rush. Yeah. Oh, for sure. That's pretty <laughs> awesome. That's a, I, I hope it was an expensive seafood dinner then. Yeah, but still for one. So yeah. Okay. Ever the so, pragmatist. Yeah. yeah. Smart, smart guy. All right. Uh, Zach, where, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at, uh, at graceful DFS to L's. Um, and that's about it, man. Hopefully you'll find me on the leaderboards with all of you. Um, I cannot wait for MLB season to get started. Um, I know it's been a, a tough NBA break for everyone. So, uh, good luck to everyone in the second half of the NBA season and, uh, hope to see everyone on the leaderboards. And they won't find you right at the, uh, the NBA final, even though you got the ticket, you're not planning on going. No, I, I'm just, unfortunately this, I'm not going to be able to go to the live final. I don't think maybe last minute I'll be able to, um, just a couple of things at home I need to deal with. Um, and it's all off in Denver. Um, so if I'm being honest, if it was in Miami, would I be there? Maybe, but, yeah. uh, I'll definitely, definitely knock on wood be at the MLB final. All right. So, so not, not at this one, but we'll catch you at future live finals as well. Yes, sir. All right. Well, thank you very much. Zach Frankel for coming on to High Stakes episode 32. Thank you to Mike Lawrence for producing as always. And thank you for watching. You'll be able to catch episode 33 of High Stakes two weeks from today on Friday afternoon on the Stochastic YouTube or wherever you listen to your podcast. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. Thank you.
Looking for a fun way to win 25 times your money this football and basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of stats, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million players who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/play100 and use code play100. That's code play100 at prizepicks.com/play100 for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. Some people don't think horses and people communicate. We call those people not horse people. Not horse people don't know you and your horse share a unique bond or that your horse knows you know they like your dogs. But not so much the barking. At Sentinel Horse Nutrition, we don't knock not horse people. We're too busy focusing on horse people's horses. With extruded nugget feeds for exceptional nutrition and formulas for every need, our wide choice of feeds makes it easy to find the fit for your horse's health. Find theirs at feedsentinel.com.